Good morning, Three Rivers Church. I'm so very glad to be live streaming today and glad that we can be together in this fashion. Uh, it feels much more normal than it has felt. Good news is we're really getting closer to finishing up the book of Genesis. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 49 verse 29 through chapter 50 verse 26. And today we're going to be looking at the reality that we learn that there are some things that we are to believe that are going to affect our decision making, going to affect our actions. Notes are available for you at MitchJolly.com. So as we have in the past and we've done for so many years, the notes for the sermon are available for you. So if you want to get on and see and follow along you can do that as well. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday in Genesis. We're actually going to finish Genesis. Thirteen years later, we're done. And so I'm excited to wrap up Genesis. And then we're going to be having Father's Day. And then we're going to launch into a new series on the church. What the church is and what the church's mission is. But today we're going to wrap up studying through chapter 50. And next week we're going to do a summary of the book of Genesis. And we're going to launch into Father's Day. So Genesis chapter 49 verse 29 through chapter 50 verse 26. I'm going to read it. We're going to discover what the passage says. And we're going to walk through what it teaches us about God and man and life in the kingdom of God. And then how to apply the passage. So here we go. Genesis 49 beginning in verse 21. And don't forget, as you study, the the titles in your Bibles are not inspired. The verse and chapter breakdowns are not inspired. Those are put there to help us organize the narrative. So we're kind of breaking up a, a section in your Bible because... God didn't put that section there. Those are tools to help us make sense of the narrative. So that's why we're starting in verse 29. A little Bible study hint for you. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Now this is Jacob. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought... With the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And don't forget, this is something that Abraham did that was an act of faith. Because God called him from his homeland to go to a place that he didn't know. And for him to not possess that land yet buy a burying place in it, not in his hometown, was an act of faith that he trusted the Lord. And Jacob, following in the footsteps of the example set by grandfather and dad, is now stating to his sons, that's where we belong. Therefore, carry me there. So he's acting in faith at his death to command that he be buried in this place that was purchased as an act of faith. Verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, then Joseph fell in his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Interesting note here. The time commanded to mourn for Pharaoh, seventy-two days. 
they give Jacob a period of mourning two days short of that of Pharaoh. And there's some indications here that Jacob has lived a faithful life while he is in Egypt. And he has been an asset to these people and served them and bore witness to who the Lord is. And they honor him almost right up to the same amount of time as Pharaoh. He's lived a faithful life. And even the outsiders to the kingdom of God have honored that. He's lived a life of faith in front of them. And that is a beautiful thing. Verse 4. And when the days for weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb. I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both the chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. Just a side note as well here. Seventy days, the amount of the time of the journey to this particular point, and then seven days more. This has really nothing to do exceptionally about life in the kingdom of God or something we learn about God. But it's an interesting note that they recognized the need for grieving and gave time to it. And in our context, we live such a hurried life that we grant three days for grieving and just expect us to move on. Death creates hard things that are dealt with Only when we lament, as Pastor Emmett reminds us. And lamenting is one of the ways we care for our soul. And so they recognized this is hard. And they worked this out through grieving and lamentation. Verse 11. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah in the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, They said, now you feel a little scheming coming here. Found no commentator who didn't think that they're making this up. Because Jacob, they have viewed as the mediator between the brother they so mistreated and themselves. And so it appears that they're making up some level of story to try to make sure Joseph doesn't come and get them. So they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. 
Look at Joseph's response. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph has already released them. Joseph's already forgiven them. Joseph is displaying that in his faithful behavior to care for them in the midst of this famine. And he weeps. He is moved for their insecurity in the relationship they have. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Look at Joseph's again response. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And and, and when you hear that, don't hear that as Joseph throwing verbal rocks at them, going, I'm not God, I'm not going to get you. That's not how he says this. I want you to notice his theological reasoning, and I want you to hear it through the lens of mercy and grace and kindness. He says, Don't fear, I'm not God. Don't fear. And here's why he says that, verse 20. As for you, you know you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today. So do not fear. Don't fear. God worked good here. Look what he did. You're alive. You survived the famine. Don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. Joseph comforted them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't get on them. He comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Just like his dad, the legacy of a faithful life, acting by faith, do not leave me here because this is not the place. This isn't what the Lord has given us. He gave us that land. So you make sure you carry me up out of here. And in fact, you go and read the story of the Exodus in chapter 13, verse 19. They are sure To make sure they get Joseph. And they take Joseph out when they leave the land. Verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So that's what our passage says. But what does this teach us? What does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about man? And what does it teach us about life in God's kingdom? We have some observations, and I'm not going to be able to give all of them to you. I just put down the ones on the note that we're, the notes that we're going to cover, so you can see on the notes on the blog everything I'm going to give you this morning. But there's so much more. I want to encourage you in your personal study and your small groups to dive into this passage and the gospel implications, and even next week some of the beautiful gospel implications we're going to look at that God has built into history. How glorious is that? That God has built the narrative of the gospel into historical acts. Which is one of the reasons when we come to the end of all things and every man, woman, boy and girl stands before the king of the universe. There can be no claiming of ignorance because he wove it into history. How glorious is that? So we'll look at that a little more next week. So what are some things we learn? about God and man and life in God's kingdom, the first observation I want you to see is the glaring one that we set as a banner over this passage a long time ago when we started studying the life of Joseph. And it's Genesis fifty twenty, and it's this. God is at work. God is always at work. Never believe the lie that God isn't at work. 
or that somehow God is off taking a nap, or he doesn't see or doesn't know. God is always at work using evil human intent to save his people and do good. We're going to come back to that in the application, because there are a few things I want to say to you there, but Genesis 50, 20 could not be more clear. As for you, you meant evil against me. So he speaks to their intent. You had evil intentions. But he throws down the ace of spades when he says, but God meant it for good. As we said when we talked through that in community, when when Emmett and Keith and I sat here and we discussed this passage for you as the exposition of the passage, the truth of the matter is, human beings and all their evil intent cannot thwart, trump, stop, throw down the ace of spades on God's intent. Man and all of his evil intent is always trumped by the fact that God is working in and through that to pull off his good. And we see it in that their evil acts were turned to provide goods and salvation and preservation for multitudes of people. So no, we learned God is always at work in evil human intent, including what we see today where there is evil. It hasn't escaped God's attention and he is working in it to bring about good. You can mark that down. That's a reality. Next thing we see is that God's faithful die in faith. It's hard to miss in this passage that there are two deaths we have to deal with. And what we see in both of these deaths is that God's faithful, those who live by faith in Jesus Christ, die in faith. That death is not a faithless act. In fact, it's our last faithful act on this planet as it sits groaning under the curse of sin. So they die in faith. Jacob and Joseph have not yet received the promise. They haven't inherited the land. But they give instruction in anticipation of God keeping his word. And their death becomes an opportunity to act in faith. Death is no longer a victor for them. And death is not a victor for the follower of Jesus. Jacob and Joseph both refuse to stay buried outside of God's inheritance for them. Which gives us all manner of amazing things to think on. This is not going to be in your application. But you should begin to think on the reality that how we treat even our dead in Christ is important. It's, it's so important and seen as an act of faith that Jacob and Joseph both say, don't leave me there. And, and, and they say me. In other words, that's me. Wherever they are in Christ after death, and that's a theological discussion called the, the intermediate state. And you're not paying for that this morning, but that, that's, that's for you to think on. Whatever that state is in Christ after death, before our resurrection in the eternal kingdom, they're there. But they refer to themselves in death as me. Don't leave me there. In other words, me in the grave matters still. So take me up out of here. And so they see this death and their burial as a faithful act in obedience to the Lord. Jacob wants to be buried in the cave with his fathers and Joseph likewise to be taken up out of there. This is an act of faith because it's believing that what God told Jacob in Genesis 35, 10 to 15, he's believing it's going to come to pass. And I encourage you, go read that passage. It's copied for you in the notes. God told him after he wrestled with him, 
He said, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name will now be Israel. And I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. That's verse 11 in Genesis 35. He repeats the command that he gave to Adam and Eve. So there's a very real sense of sending here. Like he was sending Adam and Eve to fill the earth, multiplying it and subdue it. He's now sending Jacob to this earth like he sent Adam and Eve. Like he sent Abraham. Like he sent Isaac. Go, fill this earth, subdue it, multiply in it. And here's what he tells him. You're going to be a company of nations. And they're going to come from you. Kings are going to come from your body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your offspring as well. So Jacob is believing that what God said is true. He's believing God's word. God, you said this. I'm in Egypt. I'm about to die. So you got to keep your word. So boys, carry me up out of here and bury me there because God's got to keep his word. Listen, Christians, we live like that. We read God's word. We know God's word. And we act as though it is happening and true, even if it don't feel like it. Does that make sense? And so we live by faith now, even when we don't feel like it's a reality. This is why Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40 says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Hebrews chapter 11 lists all these amazing Old Testament saints who live by faith in Jesus. And they trusted in Him and they're commended for their faith. And he tells us they didn't receive the promise. And the reason is so that we could all receive it together. And the promise to inherit the land is the promise to inherit the earth. Jesus taught us that in the Beatitudes. That God's people inherit the entire kingdom of God, which is all of created order. So it's not this little strip of land in the Middle East. It's all of created order. And at the resurrection, when the kingdom is fully and finally established, we will be raised with them and together we will all inherit every single bit of it. And Jacob is living by faith. Joseph is living by faith. And we live by that same faith in Jesus. Acting as though the promise is still to come. Which is what fuels our great commission work. Which is what fuels our work in our city. Even though we don't see great strides in all those areas. We act as though the strides are coming. Because God made a promise and his word will not fail. They live by faith. So they died in faith. Next thing we see before we get to application is that getting even is not God's way. Getting even is not God's way. Forgiveness is God's way. Genesis 50 verse 15 to 21, we see this interaction between Joseph and his brothers in which it appears that they're concocting this story to try to make sure Joseph doesn't finally and fully even the score. And Joseph does this beautiful thing in releasing them. And here's this gospel image of substitution once again back in front of our eyes. That Joseph would take the penalty for the sins of his brothers. And he would be released, resurrected, to provide salvation and preservation for his brothers as he took the penalty for their sin. And they went free. He would then, in his going free, provide preservation and salvation for them. And he would be the one now who would continue to mediate goodness to them. They think he's got to get even. And Joseph goes, negative. No way. That's not God's way. I love you. You're my brothers. The price has been paid. Go free. And there we see this beautiful picture of the cross. That Jesus comes and he lives the perfect sinless life. And he takes a penalty of Mitchell Jolly's sin. And he dies in my place for my sin, past, present, and future. So that in him and by belief in him and coming to him, I go free. 
And he took the price for me. Therefore, when I look at God, I don't see God getting even. And that's probably one of my chief Achilles spiritual heels. Is I constantly think, God has to even the score. This has got to be going sideways because God knows what I did. He remembers 10th grade. He remembers freshman year. And the cross speaks up and says, what? No. I see Christ's. And there, this gospel invitation to realize God doesn't get even. And therefore, because God doesn't get even and pays for our sin through the sacrifice of Christ, we therefore, as followers of Christ, don't get even either. Joseph loves, he doesn't get even. So how do we apply this passage today? Number one. We believe. Now, most of these are belief, right? This passage is full of truth. We need to believe. And there's some, there's some thing, there's a thing to do. But primarily, these are structures of faith. Theological truths we need to believe. They're going to influence our actions. Because remember, Jacob was acting on something he believed. God is truthful. And his word is true, and so I'm going to die in faith. So he's doing something because he believes right. This is all about what we believe that's going to impact our actions. Here we go. We believe that no evil action done to us has failed to pass through God's good purpose for us. We believe that. And I would say one of the hardest things you're going to have to hold on to in life is that belief that when evil happens to you, the belief that it has passed through God's grace and a redemptive purpose for us. I just encourage you, if you struggle with that, read the first two to three chapters of Job. And you will see that Satan doesn't get to take free pot shots at God's people. He's not sitting out there with a spiritual ray gun shooting at us at will. He is a dog on God's sovereign leash. And whatever evil he is allowed to do, God let him do it with preserving intent in it. Meaning he cannot thwart God's good purpose in us. That will keep you sane. Jesus in this time isn't failing to build his church in spite of how it feels. With the Rona and with race relations... Jesus is still building his church. He has not fumbled the ball. This includes all of us corporately and it includes us as individuals who are part of the whole. He's working in us as individuals and therefore us as a corporate body. Second application, we believe faith. We believe this, that faith anticipates and hopes in God's faithfulness and then acts accordingly. We believe that faith looks in hope toward God keeping his promises, and we act as though he actually will keep his promises. Jacob and Joseph gave orders to carry them up to the land they didn't yet own. I mean, you got to stop and stew on that for a minute. They didn't own the land. It's not theirs. The promised land is not yet inherited. It's got a little cave to bury people in. And because they believed that that whole place would be theirs, get me up out of here, there. They anticipated God being faithful and they acted accordingly. What ways has God said He will be faithful that's going to affect your decision making and my decision making today? I don't know every heart. 
I can't see down into the areas of your heart and you can't see mine. But there are things God has spoken clearly from his word to you. Act today as though they were already yours and act in faith. We preach the gospel in hope that it can save those who hear because it can save as opposed to my convincing speech. We do justice Believing that God rewards justice and God does justice. We obey righteous laws. Believing that God rules through governing bodies. It is as much an act of faith to trust that God is ruling through decent government. As it is to buck decent government. We run from sin. Trusting that the fruit of righteousness is better than the fruit of sin. We gather now in the way we've had to for this short momentary time of affliction in faith that Jesus is still building His church. Most of the great stories of the faith are written in hindsight when reflecting on how God used the difficult time to advance His kingdom. Can you imagine in church history when we're all dead and in the grave? The stories, perhaps, that will be written of the church in the West because we follow the Lord, obey the Lord, and acted in faith and stayed on mission. And people will write about, man, this guy right here, man, they buckled up and got it done and stayed faithful. And look at the movement off of their life because of it. Unnamed saints now, one day, people will look back on and tell stories of faithfulness. Because we stayed on mission during this time. You usually don't feel it in the midst. Adoniram Judson didn't feel it in the midst. I've lost wife, children. My scrolls have been burned. No one's believed the gospel. What good was this? Today you know his name. Right? Those are the great stories of the faith. Because we act in faith now in the middle of hard times. Don't look past hard times. Lean into them. We practice our pro-life ethic in full-orbed love of justice and righteousness from the womb to the tomb. We believe every human being deserves the fullness of God's kingdom and the opportunity to follow Jesus together with people from every tribe as one family united in Christ without any manner of discrimination. I'm going to say something here that is very important, and I recognize it's going to make some people very uncomfortable. Many are fearful of saying, black lives matter. So they counter with some other statement. Perhaps our faith is practiced by empathizing like this. I borrowed this from Doug Williford and inserted my wife's name into it for a moment. So, here you go. Perhaps empathizing looks like this, and this is an act of faith. If Jennifer comes to me in obvious pain and asks, do you love me? And I answer, I love everyone. That would be a truthful statement, but would also be hurtful and cruel in the moment. If a co-worker comes to me upset and says, my father has just died. My response of, well, everybody's parents die, would be truthful. But hurtful and cruel in the moment. You tracking with me? So when a friend speaks up in a time of obvious hurt and pain and says black lives matter. 
a response of all lives matter is truthful, but it's also hurtful and painful in the moment. Therefore, empathy sometimes merely looks like mourning with another who is hurting. And that's enough. Just lament. Don't justify. Don't try to counter it with any other argument. And perhaps it's faith when we don't have to justify our empathy with a counter argument. A life of faith just empathizes in the moment as Jesus with Mary and Martha just just wept. He didn't have to justify his weeping. He didn't have to say anything else. He just wept with them. Perhaps our faith is very pale when we have to counter empathy with a counter statement of truth. So maybe living in faith looks like merely empathizing in a difficult season because it anticipates and hopes in the faithfulness of God to pull off the uniting of the people of God in one family as we empathize with one another. We're almost done. We forgive and we don't seek vengeance on those who have hurt us. Since God works good from evil intent or misinformed intent, because sometimes people's intent toward us is not evil, it's just misinformed, we are free to release getting even. And love becomes our ethic. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38-42, that His ethic is loving even our enemies. Joseph loved his brothers when they deserved much worse. But in this gospel activity of releasing, he models for us that God's ethic isn't vengeance, but it is, in fact, forgiveness. So that as we live life together on mission, when we act like that in faith, we are trusting God for reconciliation and rightness to work all things out. We believe we're transformed to die in faith, full of the Spirit. For those in Christ, death is our servant to finish Christ's work in us. Death is not our master anymore. Death does not rule over us. Again, we said in this passage, it's hard to escape the reality. There are two deaths we have to look at. But neither one are presented by Moses writing to his people as a downer. There's no hint in this passage of the grieving being a downer. We have a tendency to perhaps put grief in the category of a downer. No, gospel grief looks to the fulfillment of the promise that they will rise. They are not just there, they're with Christ and there is coming the day when he will raise them up. And we believe that we're transformed to die in faith full of the Spirit. It is appointed to man to die once and after that the judgment. And the death for the Christian is the final act of faithful living to die full of the Holy Spirit. Which is why Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. He speaks of that glorious day when the perishable will put on the imperishable and the mortal body puts on immortality. And he quotes this glorious passage, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? And O death, where is your sting? Because when the faithful die in faith, we look forward to that day in which Jesus finally and fully and forever executes death through our rising as he was raised. And finally, we worship in these faithful beliefs as we express that 
as we express that worship in song. We worship in faithful beliefs that work themselves out in Christian song. Believing the right things is an act of worship. Which is why the scriptures are full of things to believe. So that as we believe and our thinking and our emotions get tied together as they should. When we think and feel right. It is an act of worship to the Lord which works itself out in song. Sometimes lamentation. Sometimes the peaks of joy. Sometimes right in the middle there. But we worship when we believe the right things and it expresses itself in song. Which we're about to do. Psalm 147.1 says this. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So let's worship together in response to these glorious truths about who God is, who we are, and life in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would move in our hearts in a manner that causes us to see and savor more of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would cause the truths of this passage to soak deep into our soul. And even the things that we didn't get to fully address, because the passage is loaded with beautiful things. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would take those things down through the reading of your word into the souls of your people and work good in them. Cause our faith to grow and to be stronger as we take these truths and integrate them into our practice. And then we pray that you would Help us to worship well this morning. Be glorified. Be exalted, King Jesus. Keep building your church. Advance the rule of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.